That last example with Maynard Keynes and Friedrich Hayek was an admittedly depressing, pardon the pun, example, which illustrates how in the face of complexity, even the most intelligent persons can follow a train of thought that is logical, efficient, and completely misguided. Now, I want to give you a more positive example that demonstrates the power of bottom-up centric thinking over top-down centric thinking in the face of complexity. Namely, I want to show you a perspective on how Japanese management approaches complexity and why we struggle so much in North America to implement these techniques that have been so successful in Japan. At this point, you may have heard of a concept in the business world known as a digital transformation. Similar to the word neoliberalism, the term digital transformation is problematic because there's no consensus on its meaning or even its history. After all, how does it make sense that all of these digital transformations we hear about that are happening seem to be within existing computer systems, which are already, I guess, in another sense, completely digital. So that's a bit confusing. Well, if you do a bit of digging, there is a pattern that emerges that explains the basic gist of what digital and digital transformation now means. And here's what you need to know that will help it all make sense for you. Back in the early 2000s, marketing departments began to introduce a new advertising channel that would be added to the existing um, four advert. There were there were four advertising channels that existed at the time, and those four channels are first there was print uh, as a newspaper and magazine advertising. Second, there's radio, as in radio jingles, radio commercials. Third, there's television, like television commercials. And fourth, there is out of home, as in billboards and bus ads and other things that you see uh, outside. So this new digital channel that was added in the early 2000s, as you can imagine, was focused on online advertising. And originally, digital advertising was just uh, buying banner ads uh, that are at the top of websites but nowadays, it includes uh, advertising on buying advertising on Facebook or Google, on Twitter, buying ads in podcasts or pay-for-play games, and so on. And even some types of out-of-home out advertising are now managed under the digital channel. And as you can gather, working in this advertising space, even as a buyer, requires a more tech-savvy skill set. So these marketing departments started hiring software people to help them navigate this new world. And for many large organizations, this would be the first time that software people were working outside of the IT department. And if you know anything about IT departments as an information technology, they tend to be seen as bureaucratic and inflexible. But when the software people showed up in the marketing departments and started gaining clout, they began reinventing many business processes by applying agile methods. And that's what um, Agile with a, and that's Agile, by the way, with a capital A. And they picked up those Agile methods where, while working at software companies. So I'll, I'll explain what capital A Agile is in, in just a moment. But for now, I'll just say that both digital and Agile embrace the idea of developing systems and processes bottom up through a highly iterative feedback oriented process that's not supposed to be constrained by top down bureaucracies. So this is why many digital transformations involve end runs around the IT bureaucracy. So for example, cloud-based uh, software as a service providers like Salesforce.com and Adobe uh, offer packages that allow sales and marketing teams to fully manage their advertising and customer relations without, re without relying on any internal IT support or IT processes. Digital transformations are also associated with an increase in self-serve technologies like self-serve reporting, uh, self-serve report building, for example. And tools like Apple Shortcuts or Microsoft Flow are also embraced in digital by digital transformation practitioners because they allow for the automation of workflows that in the past would have required a you know IT to develop a business requirements document and all sorts of other artifacts. Uh, to be developed because, again, the IT process dictates that. So in spite of all the potential of what digital transformation can, can achieve, it's not uncommon to see these initiatives stymied by corporate bureaucracies. For example, IT can disable many of these tools and services that business departments like the marketing department are using, all in the name of cybersecurity and information governance. So often what, what you're left with is a prototype 
that cannot be sustained through established corporate policies and standards. And that's, again, what you're left with at, at the end of the, the so-called transform, digital transformation. Now, to understand the nature of this problem um, and where to find solutions, and again, the problem has to do with the fact that, you know, all this bottom-up thinking kind of hits this top-down brick wall. Um, so to understand the nature of this problem and where to find solutions, we need to look to the agile software development um, method which has been plagued by similar constraints because after all, digital comes out of agile. So let me take a moment to explain the origins of the agile development method. The agile software method crystallized in 2001 at a meeting among experienced software developers held in Snowbird, Utah. And the purpose of the meeting was to discuss the suite of lightweight software development methods that had emerged um, in the 1990s. And what all these methods um, that emerged in the 1990s had in common is that they were highly iterative and feedback-oriented. In many ways, the motivation behind these methods can be traced back to a book called The Mythical Man Month by Fred Brooks. And Fred Brooks was an IT architect and program manager who led the OS360 project at IBM. And the OS360 project was developed during the late 1960s and at the time, it was the most ambitious project IBM had ever embarked upon because it encompassed three major goals. First, there was OS 360 itself, um, which had to be an operating system similar to uh, Unix or Windows or Mac OS. Uh, secondly, OS 360 incorporated IBM's first database management system known as IMS or the Information Management System. And then third, the OS360 project needed to support the requirements of the Apollo space program, which was planning to put the first uh, man on the moon. And so it needed OS360 working with IMS, the database, to support a sophisticated inventory management system to support the Apollo space program. So it's a pretty tall order. And what Brooks observed during the execution of this project was that if you had teams of more than six people, those teams would begin to slow down when you added a seventh person. And Brooks noticed that the team would begin to slow down because communication was no longer fluid within the team. And so the team would start to get bogged down trying to keep each other in sync. And this is why Brooks coined the now famous expression. It's quite famous, at least within the software development circles. And the expression is that you cannot take nine women and have a baby in one month. Now, getting back to the agile, um, that Agile conference in Utah, drawing on modern software management patterns, the attendees of the meeting published what is now known as the, as the Manifesto for Agile Software Development in order to better codify the principles that drive successful software projects. And here are those four main principles. Principle number one, individuals and interactions over processes and tools. Principle number two, working software over comprehensive documentation. Principle number three, customer collaboration over contract negotiation. And principle number four, responding to change over following a plan. And those are the four principles. And so over time, agile practitioners began to adopt and align to Japanese management techniques. Now, some of these techniques were already in use through another Western methodology known as Six Sigma that is more closely based off of Japanese quality controls. And so over time, Agile began to embrace techniques like Kanban for managing um, and measuring requirement backlogs and test-driven development, which is based off of the Japanese con manufacturing concept of Pokeyoke which is a quality con control technique that, that more closely aligns to development than it actually does to testing. So from a high-level perspective, the main difference between Agile and non-Agile, which is often referred to as the waterfall method, is that in waterfall, all tasks are supposed to follow a rigid top-down sequence, like a manufacturing assembly line, which really, in, in terms of software, what this really means is just gathering requirements up front then building a design specification, then building a software tool that meets that specification, and then finally testing the tool to make sure that it uh, complies to the original requirements. 
But the challenge with software is that due to its complexity, it's very difficult to get the requirements right without first running demos and having user exp users experiment with the software. So depending on the feedback from the demos, you might just need to tweak a few things, or in some cases, you might need to, to go back to square one, go back to the drawing board. And regardless, the demos, if you're doing it properly, greatly de-risk the project because human interactions are often the most difficult thing to design for without getting any actual human feedback. Now, there's some irony here that I should point out. First of all, the waterfall method is essentially a straw man that agilists or agile practitioners will point to as a failed methodology, as justification for the agile methodology. And the reason I say this is that there is actually nothing in the older software development methods saying that you should not take feedback and iterate on requirements. In fact, I have never heard of a software shop that does not do this, um, going back to the early 1990s when I started working in software. It's simply an intuitive thing to do. The reason why these, these projects would often fail, especially in, in, in IT departments, has to do with the fact that IT departments are constrained by budgets, which in turn require upfront project cost estimates, which in turn require a significant portion of the requirements to be locked down. Now, if you're working a company that has strict budgeting and project management controls and you want to run an agile software project, it can be done, but it requires a special type of person who knows how to manage upwards. Namely, if an agile project manager is doing their job, then they should be able to quickly identify what the project needs in order to pivot and even adjust the budget to be adequate um, and you might even have to decide whether or not to cancel the project outright or approve a new budget. But this takes a lot of confidence to pull off because you're working against a top-down bureaucracy that would, not, that would rather not have to make such a change request, especially not if it involves more budget. And so there's always an excuse for the project to fail. And in my experience, success usually comes down to the dedication of the team members themselves. And so for this reason, the originators of the Agile Manifesto met after 10 years. And when they met, they concluded that everyone in these software companies and IT departments were doing Agile, but they felt that very few people were actually being Agile. And the root of the problem with all of these digital and Agile transformations, as I've come to see and experience, experience it is, that the success or failure depends on the underlying culture of analytics and information management. And what underlines culture are a set of values. So depending on a culture set of values, it may be very difficult, if not impossible, to impose the kinds of changes imagined by digital and agile practitioners. More specifically, if the culture does not support the values of bottom-up decision-making and bottom-up collaboration, then no amount um, that no amount of methods thinking or systems thinking is going to change these values. But let me be more specific as to where I see these cultural values stemming from and what I think will be required to bring about change. Essentially, the problem comes down to uh, fiefdoms, kingdoms, uh, supported by data silos. And, and in the same way that throughout the ages, throughout history, property has been used as a form of capital that can be exploited to generate wealth for the owner and to some extent um, for the greater province or nation, those same property owners can hold things back when it comes to prioritizing the goals of the province or the nation itself. For example, if you want to build a highway or a railway system to link up the country, the government is forced to negotiate with dozens of parties who own the land that the planned road or railway needs to go through. And the landowner can exploit this dynamic and insist upon huge amounts of compensation. Alternatively, the landowner can simply just refuse to go along. And in an open and democratic society, that's not necessarily a bad thing since pr provinces and nations don't have one simple purpose. Uh, there may be good reasons to protect that land. However, Corporations, for the most part, do have fairly straightforward goals, and any kind of explicit rebellion from, the, from departments cannot really be tolerated. That doesn't prevent fiefdoms. Instead, what can happen is departmental leaders 
wittingly or unwittingly, will exploit fear and confusion to protect their fiefdoms. So by instinct, whenever um, there's an IT system that manages information and a group of people oversee that system and all of its moving parts, they tend not to provide much transparency on how that system operates. The purported reason that these people will often give you is in the name of security, privacy, and operational stability. And while that may be true in one sense, it also results in a culture of anti-transparency. And once you have a culture that values anti-transparency, it's not so much that you cannot afford to build the road through the fiefdom's property, it's that you don't even understand what the property even is to begin with. It would be like that property owner um, you know, eventually acquiescing to the government who wants to build that road after some failed negotiation. So let's say the government just strong arms the property owner. And so the property owner then finally says, okay, fine, go ahead and you can build your road. But I'm pretty sure my property is littered with landmines that will kill you if you step on them. But we can have an ongoing, but we have an ongoing project to identify those landmines. And in fact, we've identified nearly all of them, except in the parts of the land that you need your road to go through. So maybe if you just give me and my folks another million dollars and another uh, five to 10 people, we'll find those landmines and on the land you're interested in. And by the way, um, only we know how to find those landmines. Only we know this land. Everything in our property, it's really complicated. It's really murky. There are these swamps and caves and underground streams and rivers everywhere you turn. It takes decades of living here before you can even begin to get your head around it. So that's that's a sort of an example of of the you know sort of an analogy I guess you could say of what a lot of big organizations look like and how they behave is is you run into these sort of fiefdoms. But instead of a swampy property you want to build through, instead you just want to be able to look into let's say the financial details to under of a financial reporting system to understand where all the money is flowing. Or maybe you want to you look at the point of sale tra- where the point of sale transactions are coming from. And you might want this information so you can perform other tasks um, and analyses, so you can answer other questions and plan for other things. But at some point, you might want to know how the information itself is being created and managed so you can get a sense of its trustworthiness as well. But by digging into that information and seeing it very clearly, you now have the ability to hold those who manage that information to account, which is not something those individuals um, who are managing those systems may necessarily want. So getting back to my point about digital and agile, people will continue to attempt to introduce these styles of bottom-up methods and systems because in organizations where there are not so many fiefdoms or within fiefdoms themselves, these techniques have been shown to, to have incredible promise. Like in software companies, for example, agile works can work quite well, as I've seen in, in practice. I've worked for a couple agile software companies and seen with my own eyes. But unfortunately, due to the way that information technology and business systems work, and this is very much by design, business fiefdoms spring eternal and they keep on popping up or they continue to resist any attempts at, or not any, but most attempts at transparency. And a major reason for this has to do with the fact that most businesses are operating under a so-called service paradigm. In fact, many large organizations make it their stated goal to become a service-optimized organization. And the problem with this goal is that you're effectively shunting everyone into what I like to call uh, a railway system as opposed to a roadway system. And if we think about what a railway system is, it's essentially a closed loop system with very few options where all the inputs and outputs are completely locked down and controlled. So yes, the railway system is fast and efficient. It's also very safe and environmentally friendly. But if you want that train to go somewhere it currently doesn't go, you have to wait years for a new track to be laid down. But it's stricter than that even. You, you generally can't even get the train to stop between stations And God forbid if you ever bring your own uh, engine and cars on those tracks. It's only the railway operator that can do that. In my experience, however, what I have found that 
um, when working with business analysts or anyone who is trying to work in a truly agile or digital manner is what they really crave are not so much services, but they actually crave portable and modular solutions. In other words, what they want is not the railway. They want to bring their, what they want instead is to be able to bring their own vehicles onto a roadway. And sometimes they might even want to take those vehicles off road. Unfortunately, the IT department or whoever is managing the service will tell you that there is only one option, the railway system. And if you refuse their railway system, the, then the only alternative in their view is unbridled and chaotic anarchy. Now, my own, res- my own response to this mode of thinking, which is very logical, efficient, and completely misguided, is to point to the example of the roadway system as that alternative to the railway system. So here in Ontario, as is the case in most of the developed world, our roadway system is highly governed and policed, and the amount of traffic on it far exceeds the railway system. But our, rail- but our roadway system is anything but anarchy. First of all, we have a Highway Traffic Act, which covers what you can and cannot do on the roads. And this act is constantly being enforced by provincial and municipal police officers who are proactively on the lookout for any transgressions. Some of this is even automated through things like red light cameras. Secondly, only safety certified and emission certified vehicles are allowed on the road to begin with. So you can't just bring any vehicle you want. Nevertheless, there's still a lot you can choose from. And thirdly, you need to pass a driver's test and get a driver's license And then you need to buy liability uh, insurance in in case you get into an accident. So there's a huge amount of requirements on the driver themselves. So this all sounds like a lot um, of work if you think about it, and it is, but nobody here in Ontario would trade this roadway system for our railway system. Now, fortunately, we also have a railway system here in Ontario, and it supports Things like daily commuters coming into the city from the suburbs to go to work every day. And it also supports a certain amount of city-to-city transportation, like if you're traveling between Toronto and Montreal, for example. So both of these systems uh, play a cooperative and valuable role in transportation. But the roadway system is clearly the more flexible and, I would say, important of the two. And at this point, you might be thinking that I'm just being difficult and that there is uh, nothing that can really be done about this service-oriented paradigm that has captured the, the imagination of so many executives. But I will tell you, I actually have solutions here that are, in fact, based off of the roadway system itself. But I will have to save that discussion, uh, the discussion of what that solution looks like, for a very special episode of Cradle of Analytics that I plan to release uh, in the the near future. And it will come out um, after, before before I release part two of this Origin of Analytics um, set of episodes. So uh, it should be out hopefully pretty soon, but it's gonna come out before part two of Origin of Analytics uh, comes out. So for now, what I wanna do here Uh, is simply show you what successful bottom-up thinking looks like compared to failed or unsuccessful top-down thinking. And to be clear, I'm not really making an apples-to-apples comparison. I'm just showing the difference between top-down analytical thinking and and bottom-up inductive thinking. On that note, I want to take a look at Japanese-style management as a reference point to compare to, since, as I just mentioned, many agile practitioners began adopting Japanese management techniques, and the best place to look here, uh, insofar as Japanese management goes, is the Toyota production system. Now, full disclosure, I do drive a Toyota vehicle, so I might be a little biased here. Anyway... The Toyota production system is a suite of management tools that essentially takes a more bottom-up approach. And you may have heard of some of these, but let me list a few so you can get a sense of what they're like and how they compare to their Western counterparts. First, there is Kaizen, which means continuous improvement in English. And Kaizen is in many ways the same as Agile is in the West. However, Kaizen is more of an all-encompassing corporate philosophy Whereas things like Agile and Digital are typically rolled out in small pockets and are usually seen by C-suites of corporate leaderships 
of corporate leadership as, uh, and I've seen this many times, heard this many times over, is um, possibly a fad or a flash in the pan. Another Japanese um, concept is nimawashi, which means in English, uh, circling the roots. And this is really about getting feedback on new ideas, like a new self-serve system for business reporting uh, from business colleagues, um, for example. And this kind of lines up with lines up with doing demos and presentations to get feedback. And in the West, we tend to focus on getting buy-in from the people at the top of the organization. But in Japan, Nimawashi starts with getting the buy-in from the people at the bottom of the corporate hierarchy, including people like cleaners and janitors. Um, so I, I really actually prefer the Japanese style, which is not unlike the um, so-called land and, land and expand approach you often hear software salespeople talk about. And I can proudly say that I have brought about positive transformations by actually focusing on this sort of Nimawashi low level. However, I have just as often felt like I was Sisyphus pushing that boulder up the hill only to see it roll back down again. Uh, and I should also mention I've seen countless projects with approvals coming from the very top with next to no consultation and often I've seen this leading to disastrous outcomes. So, so that's Nimawashi. Um, another Japanese concept, it, management concept out of the um, Toyota production system is called Pokeyoke. And in English, this basically means to uh, fail safe or bulletproof something. So in Japanese manufacturing, uh, when a defect is discovered, the, the floor workers will devise new tools and methods to prevent that defect from ever occurring again uh, to begin with. So they're going after the root cause. Um, and it's this continuous cycle where they're just constantly looking for root cause. They're doing root cause analysis and then they're uh, repairing that root cause or they're addressing that root cause. And here in the West, there is um, something similar called test-driven development. And this is a software development technique whereby the software developer, developer wrote, writes both software code and quality assurance test code, so that they write a test case, and they do it all at the same time. So the developer is also the tester. And it's not a bad idea in principle, but the reality is, is that test-driven development is so narrow as it's implemented uh, here in North America that it tends to only catch bugs within relatively simple subroutines. And it actually does not address the vast majority of system issues, which tend to be uh, involve things like cross-system integration and data quality issues. So I found in practice that the impact of test-driven development on Western software development is somewhat minimal unless you've got more ambitious developers who understand the underlying principles and are, are willing to apply them a little bit outside of the box. Those are some of the philosophies borrowed from the Toyota production system in the West. But there are other philosophies that have never really made the jump from Japan, but can still be seen in some Western traditions. So take, for example, uh, Hansai, um, which means self-reflection. And this is the idea of reflecting upon failure and trying to figure out what went wrong but in the most sort of humble and self-effacing way. So it's it, it goes beyond sort of pokey yoke root cause analysis, and it's looking at things in a, in a more holistic way, um, shall we say. So the closest thing I can really point to in the West um, is a concept known as the reflective practitioner. And that was popularized by Donald Shun in his um, book named The Reflective Practitioner, how professionals think in action. However, I have only ever heard of one consultant ever mentioning this book. And while I've seen projects go through so-called lessons learned exercises, I rarely hear, hear about people discussing lesson learned documents. Uh, most people just will ask if a project succeeded or failed and leave it at that. In fact, if it fails, I, I rarely he hear people ask too many questions. Uh, at this point, I'd like to um, illustrate some of these ideas and give you what I'm kind of calling a tale of two companies, like a tale of two cities, if, if, if you will, um, which illustrates the difference between 
what I would describe as a very um, stereotypical Western top-down thinking uh, and contrast that with uh, a non-Western or Eastern, if you will, more bottom-up thinking so you can kind of see the contrast. Um, but again, this is not an apples-to-apples comparison here, so I don't want to mislead you. It's just, again, to illustrate different types of thinking. So let's get into that. So the first story, um, the first of our companies or stories, if you will, is about the E.T., the extraterrestrial video game, which some of you may have heard of. And the E.T. extraterrestrial video game was released in 1982 by a company called Atari, which you may have heard of. And the second story I'm going to tell you about contrast to is another video game called The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. And that game was released in 2017 by Nintendo. So... First of all, a lot has changed between 1982 and 2017. So another reason not to treat this as an apples-to-apples comparison, but again, as a, as a sort of a, um, a way of illustrating the different approaches to thinking. So starting with the E.T. video game, what you need to know is, is the circumstances surrounding um, the video game itself and surrounding the movie itself. So the the, um, the problem was is that the move the, the video... The E.T. video game was based on the E.T. movie, and the E.T. movie created a kind of a what I would call like a, a logical time bomb for the video game's development. And, and here's why this time bomb happened. The problem was, was that the E.T. movie came out in June of 1982, and by July, it was clear that the movie was a hit. And the demand for all things E.T. had gone through the roof. Now, nobody was expecting it to be this successful. And I remember when this movie came out. And it was this craze. It was a huge craze. But like anything Hollywood, it was also likely a fad. So, you know, the, the, the clock is ticking. And seizing on this opportunity, Atari struck this deal with Steven Spielberg to develop an E.T. video game that would be, in, that would be ready in time for Christmas. So this didn't really give Atari much time to build the game itself. And as a result, they went to their very best game developer. And back then, um, a video game developer was in charge of all aspects of the game's design and development, including the um, the, the game's look and feel and, of course, the underlying um, software code itself to actually make the game work. So it was like a, like a one-man show if you're a, a video game developer back in those days. And, the, and one of the best developers Atari had was a person by the name of Howard Scott Warshaw. And Atari um, made a deal with Warshaw and paid him to develop the, the new game for a pretty generous sum of money. And um, so it was a good deal for Warshaw, but they, they stipulated that the game had to be developed entirely within six weeks. Weeks. So... That's an insane timeline for something like that. Nevertheless, Warshaw delivered the goods and the game went on sale for Christmas and it actually sold one and a half million copies. However, as you can imagine, before long, it became apparent to the general public that the game was complete garbage. The game really frustrated players because there were so many um, traps and people spent all of their time or most of their time getting stuck in these little stupid little traps. And there wasn't any, there, there was often no obvious way to get out. And in some cases you couldn't get out because there were bugs in the game, which made these traps like really impossible to avoid. It, I mean, if you've ever played video games and run into a bug like this, it's one of the most frustrating experiences. So it, it was a very rushed project. Um, but Atari fan. Um, now, so that's to be fair to Atari and Warshaw. Like, so you can see why everything was rushed and why they kind of did things the way they did. So I don't really blame them necessarily. And, and I probably would have done the same thing, but the Atari fans felt that they were, they were the butt of some kind of a cosmic joke. It was that bad. And this game eventually triggered a much bigger backlash, not only against the Atari 2600 console, but even the competing consoles like the Intellivision and the burgeoning ColecoVision. And as a result, the entire American video game console market basically cratered, uh, and it nearly bankrupt Atari and forced it to break up in 1984. 
And video game consoles would only really see a resurgence after Nintendo, uh, the Japanese company, entered the U.S. and Canadian market in 1986 with the Nintendo Entertainment System. So, so that was that. And again, you know, you can see how those decisions were made, and you can see how they were all kind of logical and they all made sense. Now, I want to compare this to Nintendo. So fast forward to, to 2017. Nintendo released its most ambitious game ever, which is um, The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. And as of June 2018, a year later, Nintendo sold more than 10 million copies of the game, and it's been their most successful title to date. The game's also won nearly every single accolade in the video game industry, and the player reactions have been overwhelmingly positive. However, um, the game took nearly six years to develop, unlike the E.T. video game, which only took six weeks. But what's most fascinating to me is about the development is not so much how long it took overall, but the fact that the, de the developers were able to push the deadline back by over a year. Um, and that's a really long time for, for developers to be pushing back for. And to get a feel of how this decision was arrived at, uh, I want to um, read to you an excerpt from an interview with I.G. Uh, Aonuma, who is the developer lead at Nintendo. And what Aonuma says is this, quote, We have these milestones during development. I play the game, then give my staff comments, my advice on what direction they should be heading in. At one of the milestones, the game was fantastic. There were so many great elements. But at the next milestone, that was all gone. I'd made a lot of comments about what they needed to add, but I never told them what I thought was good about the game at that milestone. So they added stuff that I'd re recommended, but they also added some other elements that they thought would work well. And that ended up breaking all the good parts of the previous build. I learned that when it's good, I have to say so. If I'd managed that, we'll, we'll maybe development wouldn't have extended quite so much. And in, then Aonuma, um, uh, sorry, I'm struggling with his name a little bit. He goes on to say, quote, there's a form of Japanese theater called kabuki. A kabuki master would say, in order to break the mold, you have to know the mold. Often when I speak to Mr. Miyamoto about a problem, that's the feedback he'll give me. You don't understand the mold here. That's why it's no good. End quote. And Mr. Miyamoto, of course, is the sort of guru at Nintendo who, you know, is the original inventor of, um, of all of these other uh, games like, like Zelda and, and Mario and a whole bunch of others. So competing, comparing this um, to the example of the E.T. video game, it's quite easy to see how these decisions that were made from the top are all perfectly logical. And again, as if I was in the executive position, I would have done the same thing. But if I'm to be completely honest with myself, the culture at Nintendo that allowed for this pushback on the timelines, it actually seems a bit mysterious to me, given that Nintendo is a for-profit company just like Atari was. And yes, I'm aware that there may have been other business factors at play that did not that did not come up in the interview, like for example the release of Nintendo's new Switch console. So, um, you know, I again, I'm, I'm not saying that uh, these two situations are directly comparable. I'm just saying one is an example of top-down thinking, and the other is more about um, bottom-up thinking. The great irony here is that companies like Toyota. And I suppose in some extent, by extension, maybe Nintendo, uh, learn their major techniques from an American or learn their manufacturing quality techniques, I should say, from an American statistician by the name of Edward Deming, who came over to Japan following World War II to help with its reconstruction. And Deming used statistical sampling techniques to improve, um, originally to improve the quality of data in the United States census and he taught the Japanese how they could apply the same techniques to manufacturing by simply just continually sampling and then inspecting the samples of manufactured parts looking out for defects. And interestingly, the Japanese took this method to heart 
in their manufacturing, whereas the American car manufacturers didn't really pay that much attention to Deming's uh, sampling techniques until probably the, the late 70s or, or maybe early 1980s. Now, getting back to Atari and Nintendo, all I can really say is that I find this, this tale of two video games, I mean, even if it's possibly uh, fictitious, to be a source of inspiration because it shows how one can strive for one ideal while achieving another almost as a byproduct. In other words, life doesn't always have to be about logical trade-offs. Again, to be clear, I'm not saying that the Japanese video game companies are better than American video companies, not at all. I'm sure if I spent enough time, I could find an example of a Western top-down thinking ruining a video game in Japan, and I'm sure I could find an example of bottom-up thinking at an American video game leading to some great success. The reason I chose these examples as I did was merely to show how Japanese companies can more easily draw from a richer history of non-Western thinking, whereas here in purely Western countries like Canada and the, and the United States, we seem to struggle more at embracing bottom-up thinking. For me personally, I draw a lot of inspiration from the architect Frank Lloyd Wright, who is often regarded as one of the greatest um, you know, physical architects of all time. And what made Frank Lloyd Frank Lloyd Wright so different from his peers, although, to be honest with you, he's not the first to think this way. Um, he was actually mentored very much this way, was his embrace of what he called organic architecture, which is to say he believed that design should emerge bottom-up from the surrounding environment. And Wright was very much a student of and inspired by non-Western cultures, including American Aboriginal cultures like First Nation cultures, and also, interestingly, Japanese culture. And he actually traveled to Japan um, back during a time when there weren't a lot of West Westerners going over to Japan, uh, even before World War II. So um, he had such a strong relationship. He was a huge uh, collector of Japanese woodblock art. And uh, he loved Japan. And in fact, he designed um, the now famous uh, Tokyo Imperial Hotel, which to this day you can go actually and stay at. It's one of the most impressive hotels in all of Tokyo. Now Wright's big idea is that when it came to architecture, you couldn't design a structure or a, you know, a planned um, subdivision or community without first understanding the surrounding, um, the, the surround, like the, the, the neighborhood or I should say the landscape's uh, look and feel and even the landscape's history. And that if you were to design something without that in mind or without emerging from that, then and you were to take a sort of a top-down approach, in Frank Lloyd Wright's view, this was nothing less than an atrocity. I mean, he felt very strongly about this. And while Wright's organic approach to architecture is still popular in the modern day, architects um, really still struggle to live up to this ideal. And Wright himself had a reputation for being very arrogant, and he frustrated pretty much everyone he ever worked with. But he remained unapologetic to the day he died for the simple reason that he felt that most people were condemned to simple top, simplistic top-down thinking and lacked the courage to embrace bottom-up organic culture. And while I'm not going to justify some of his more reckless decisions, it's hard not to look at a structure or a house like um, the Falling Water House in Pennsylvania, which if you've never seen, you should go and Google it right now and take a look at it. Um, and that's the house that's sort of built into a waterfall. And it's hard not to look at that house and not appreciate where Frank Lloyd Wright was coming from. And the beauty and the elegance that that house exudes is still, in my opinion, something very few architects can ever hope to achieve. Okay, so I'm going to sort of change the um, uh, change the, the topic a little bit, and I want to finish with uh, one final example that I hope that will give some of those of you who are more analytical thinkers, like myself, a way of wielding the tool of logic without allowing it to be wielded against yourself. And in this example. This final example, uh, third and final example, I should say, I want to talk about the Google search engine. And the Google search engine, as some of you may know, was founded by, excuse me, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, who were both postgraduate students at Stanford University in the late 1990s. And Page and Brin 
What they realized at that time was that most search engines were inherently unscalable and a new solution was needed. And on one hand, you had the search engine Yahoo, which employed a small army of librarians to place each and every single website in a category. And Yahoo is kind of like the yellow pages for the internet. And I'd say actually, in some ways, it's a shame that it's no longer really sort of being updated because at the time there was something nice about being able to go on Yahoo and then browse a list of categories for websites. And it was like kind of stumble upon, I guess you could say. And it also gave the internet a kind of a structure that's sort of missing today. So that's how Yahoo got its start and what it used to be like. But as you can imagine, it's not really possible to hire enough librarians to categorize the entire internet. And the Google guys knew this. And, and by the way, you need to hire librarians. You can't just crowdsource it because that can be too easily gained. So on the other hand, you had a search engine called AltaVista, which was known as the first, uh, or not the first, but is the most popular full text search engine. And the way AltaVista worked was it would automatically just crawl websites and it would start to index all of the words on those, those websites on every single page. And then it would just keep track of how many times a particular word or phrase appeared on that web on that web page, so that when you search for those words or phrases, AltaVista would then show you the websites with the most occurrences of that that matching word. But as you can imagine, most search results were pretty useless. So you'd often spend hours just typing in different keywords in the hopes of finding what you're looking for. And oh, it, like I spent so much time in AltaVista, and it was like. Pff, 10% of the time you might find something of, of, of use, but for whatever reason, you just kept at it. So the insight that Larry Page and Sergey Brin had was that they understood that the most relevant academic papers tended to be um, the papers that were cited the most by other researchers, because of course they were postgraduate students. So for example, you might not realize this, but the academic um, paper titled Protein Measurement with the Foliophenol Reagent uh, which was authored in 1951, is the most cited research paper in the world with over 305,148 citations. So that means that 305,148 academic papers, probably more since I've said this, uh, reference this paper. So if you're a biochemist, you probably want to read this paper. It's probably very relevant to you. And the Google guys realized that they could apply the same approach to the entire internet and base ranking on the internet equivalent to academic citations, which are pretty much the same thing as um, web hyper hyperlinks. And so soon after the Google search engine launched in 1998, Google quickly became the most popular site on the web because it had solved the relevancy problem that had plagued the internet for the last three years. Like, in, in other words, they had done what AltaVista and Yahoo were unable to do. And in my recollection, and I remember using Yahoo for the first time, it was a watershed moment. It felt like someone had created this sort of magical black light that could illuminate all of these otherwise hidden pages. And after all of this, this time dead ends wa wasted using search engines like AltaVista or their, they had competitors like Lycos, um, it was just a, a breath of fresh air to see something like Google, which just seemed to work every time. And before long, uh, a small industry popped up known as SEO or search engine optimi optimization. To be honest with you, this industry kind of existed a little bit before Google, but it really started getting big after Google. And essentially what these, these SEO businesses would do is they would create what are known as link farms. And these link farms are essentially just bogus websites that it's the only purpose of the website is just to link to another website for the purpose of boosting that other website's ranking within the Google search engine. So you could pay somebody to, uh, if you want to boost your own website's um, popularity, you just, you just pay, pay one of these SEOs and they'll just take their, their, their link farms and they'll update them so they're all pointing back to you and it seems like you're the most popular person on the internet or your site's the most popular on the internet. And of course, it's all nonsense. It's just you, you've, you've tried to game the system. So Google knew this, that people were doing this, and they would retaliate by modifying their, their algorithm, which is called PageRank, named after Larry Page, to identify these link farms. And then once these link farms were identified and they had ways of doing that, those link farms were sort of inoculated and their impact on search results was essentially minimized. 
And to this day, Google is still far from perfect, but they've actually done a pretty reasonably good job at keeping search results relevant. Now, while most of this has to do with technology itself, the most important tool Google has in this battle is secrecy. And unlike Google, Yahoo or AltaVista or the Yellow Pages for that matter, Google purposely keeps it a secret as to how they actually come up with their search results. However, if you ask them how their search engine works, they always will answer the same way. They say, quote, our search engine gives users the most useful and relevant results in a fraction of a second. And what Google is telling you is the principle its results are based on, not the rules themselves. And the reason is that the rules are by their very nature explicit and can be gamed, whereas principles are inherently vague and subjective. But all the while, we generally embrace the idea of having principles even though we know they come with some ambiguities. And so the lesson I want to impart to you here is that if you can focus on principles instead of rules, then this opens up two opportunities. First, you can figure out on your own if the rules you have implemented really do line up with the principles you purport to endorse. So if Google ever makes a change to its algorithms underlying rules, there's a higher standard it can hold itself accountable to. And second, by keeping the details of the rules to yourself, you can avoid getting caught in a logical trap by somebody pointing out some obscure contradiction and then using the fallacy of composition to argue that the rules are flawed or suspect. Depending on the situation, however, you might need to reveal the rules, but even still, having the focus on principles will keep the rules aligned towards your longer-term goals. So to sum up the last example, in the face of complexity, stick to principles over rules. Okay, so we're now ready to move on to the final segment of part one, which we will get into the physical origins of analytics and where the appetite for analytics came from. And that emerged out of Mesopotamia beginning nearly 8,000 years ago.